Our sermon passage is from Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 to 35. We sang of where we're going, a world without chaos or storm. And Jesus is going to tell us this morning what to expect before we get there. And so that's what we're in. This is Obsection from chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus is telling us what to expect after he goes up into heaven, what to expect before the end of the world. He's preparing you and I to persevere. And so this is, some of this is going to be strange, but this is the, this is one of the harder parts of Matthew to, to, to communicate and to teach, but it's also beautiful uh, if, when, when we see what, what to expect. And so let's read it. One of the things that it's helpful, he calls the, the, the hard things that happen as we wait, birth pains, right? So as, Jesus, as we read this, just think of this as, it's going to be a weird analogy, but it's like, it's, it's like a Lamaze class, right? Teaching you what to expect <laughs> as we wait for the new heavens and new earth to be born, how to persevere. So let's read this. This is God's word. Jesus left the temple and was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will, be not, not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. 
If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming be of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens, the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to learn to live well in light of the eternity predicted and promised us by Jesus. And so I pray that you would just teach us how to use our longings, our troubles, our dissatisfactions, our despair, Teach us to groan and long for the redemption that is promised. And so I ask now that you would send the Spirit to help us understand, but then also to lead us to repentance and deepen our faith. And so help us leave here um, tougher and more secure in Christ than when we arrived. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you came this morning, whether you are aware of it or not, Uh, living out of your eschatology. I'm I'm using a big word there. I'm not speaking in tongues. Eschatology is just the the word that means the study of the last things. It's the study of how the world will end. And everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, has some form of eschatology. You have some idea, some theology, some belief in your mind of where this world is going. Right? Maybe yours is weird and you're just waiting for the zombie apocalypse. Either way, that is some form of an eschatology. Everybody has one, right? Or maybe yours is more non-religious. This would be our neighbors. Uh, If you're completely secular, you just realize that at some point the the sun is going to get hotter and hotter and the earth is just going to burn up and everything we do now will not matter in the end because it's just going to go up in flames, right? We have an eschatology, a, a belief about the end, and, and your understanding of where the world is going is designed by God, and it's just, it's just how human beings function. It affects how we live now. All right? There are other kinds of views of the end times. When it's more Eastern, we're just stuck in the cycle of, of reincarnation. Maybe you've heard this before, that if you live well, you get to move up in the world. If you live poorly... You move back down into the animal kingdom. Um, come back as a dung beetle. Right? Choose wisely. <laughs> but even that, if this world is just a cycle, then the suffering doesn't matter. And that's going to affect how you live in this world. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24, it's, it's famous. 
Uh, it's notorious among Christian teachers. I mean, people are trying to figure out exactly what all the nitty-gritty details mean. But the big idea is that Jesus is telling us what to expect, how the world's going to end. Where is everything headed? And he's trying to shape our expectations so we don't get lost in the chaos. And so part of this is hard because he's quoting and, and alluding to and referring to all kinds of places in the Old Testament that are confusing anyway, and he brings them in here. But I'm hoping that as we look at this, the beginning part of chapter 24, there's going to be a lot of teaching. But I hope it's supposed to be encouraging as, you, as Jesus knows what's going to happen. Everything that's happening right now is not a surprise. This is, this is birth pains on the journey to the end. And let me say this uh, just as a way of introduction. When people talk about the end of the world, it just freaks us out. It just sounds weird because we don't talk about it, right? Um, it's not, Jesus is not trying to get you to get out your newspaper and get out your Bible and look at the Middle East and just try and figure out, okay, when is he coming back? Verse 36 says, no one knows, not even Jesus himself. Right? So as we, as we read this, I'm not trying to get you to freak out about the end of the world. Jesus is trying to really shape you and mold you and toughen you to know what to expect. Right? So don't, don't be like Harold Camping. You remember this? I'm going to pick on him because he was public multiple times where he, was, he took what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He took the book of Revelation. He took all this stuff about where the world is going and said, okay, I know when Jesus is coming. Right, the last date was 2011, May 21st. And maybe you remember, there were just billboards everywhere. Right, even, even CNN and, and the BBC and, and Fox News, they were talking about it because people started to sold their homes. They sold all of their belongings because what do I need stuff for if, if it's all going up in flames on May 22nd? And so they gave all their money to advertise for this and May 22nd came. Obviously, we're still here and he was wrong. And actually, the stress of being wrong just destroyed him physically. Uh, camping had a stroke soon after. And so here's the point, right? When Jesus tells us what to expect, it's not designed to stress you out. It's designed to toughen you, to help you persevere to the end. It's leading you to rest, even as we know we're in the midst of tribulation. He's teaching us how to live in light of the end of the world. And, and this, is, this is helpful because we live based on what we expect will happen in the future. If I know pain is in my immediate future, if I make this decision, I'm not going to choose this. Right? If, I mean, would you go back in time and board the Titanic knowing what you know about the Titanic now? Right? If you knew that Rose wouldn't let you hang on that door with her and just let you sink like a rock, would, right, would you get on? Of course not, because we bake our plans based on our expectations of the future. And, and the Christian theology is designed the same way. Jesus knows how we operate. He says, this is what is to come. Plan and prepare accordingly. Live based on what I'm telling you will happen. So let's look at it. Let's look at how Jesus breaks it up, how he understands the end of the world, then what will happen, and ultimately what is our longing all right, so we're going to learn how to talk about this, how to get a, we get a preview of the end, and what to long for. 
So point one, how does Jesus understand the end of the world? And you look at the beginning of 24, this really helps with context. Jesus just came out of the temple. He's a whole series of arguments with the religious leaders. Jesus has just cried, basically, over unrepentance, people who refused to believe in him. And on their way out, the disciples are saying, look at how amazing the building is. Look at the architecture. Look at the design. Isn't the temple great? Isn't God's house inspiring and incredible? And Jesus responds with this very cheery response, truly, truly, I say to you, it's all going down. <laughs> it's all going to burn. Right? Not, there's not going to be one stone left on another. The, demo, the demolition is going to be complete. Great conversation. So they, they freak out. They say, okay, what do you mean, Jesus? They come back to him later. That's verse 3. And they ask three questions. Okay, well, when is the temple going to be destroyed? What will be the signs of your coming? And what will be the signs that the end is near? What should we expect? When's it all going to happen? And so they think that the temple being destroyed, Jesus coming back, and the end of the world is all one big event, and they're saying, prepare us for it. When's all this stuff going to happen? And so they expect one day, and Jesus corrects them and says, I'm going to tell you about two different days, two events. You have first the destruction of Jerusalem and everything leading up to that, and then you have the end of the world, all right? So this is just a category to help. I mean, this is going to be a teaching sermon. It's because this is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, but there are two different events that Jesus is talking about. He is in 30 AD, roughly, and he's telling them in 40 years, I mean, without being specific with the date, but before this generation passes away, this temple is going to be annihilated. It's going to happen in your lifetime, and we know from history that's exactly what happened. Jesus is predicting what will happen here. The Romans uh, laid siege to Jerusalem, and the, the whole city was laid waste. But Jesus also expects a one day in the future where, when he will return, this age will come to an end, when the new heavens and new earth will take place. Right? When Jesus will return, raise everyone from the dead for the last judgment, and those saved by grace will spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth. And those who rejected Jesus will get what their hearts desire, eternity without God in hell. It's all one day, all one event. That day in the future. And it'll be a day where Jesus returns visibly. You won't be able to mistake it. It's like lightning in the sky across the entire earth. Everyone's going to be raised. And the climax will be life eternal with Jesus. And so this is the framework. This is just going to help you understand this chapter. Is Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed, but he's also talking at the same time about the end of the world. And he has two different events in mind. All right, so this is where you and I live in between those two days. Right, we, we live in this world waiting for the last day to come. It is one event. And so it's not that complicated. It's really simple that, that all of creation is rushing headlong towards this confrontation with Jesus. It's going to happen all at once. So the way I get there, we read it in verse 34 at the end of Matthew 24. There he just says, look, everything I just told you is going to happen in the lifetime of this generation. But he's still talking about the end. And so we have, to, we have to figure out how to hold those two things together, right? 
So everything that happens, the wars, the messiahs, the suffering, the tribulation, the persecution, all that happened before the temple was destroyed. But that's also a picture of what's going to happen before Jesus comes back at the end. And so that's how Jesus is approaching this. Now, second point. What we have when Jesus talks about the, the destruction of the temple is just a preview of what to expect, the end of the world. And, and so this is what makes it relevant for us because, you know, right, we're in 2018. What is it to me that this historical event happened 2,000 years ago? Right? This isn't a history exam. And what Jesus is telling us here, it's just a preview of the last day. The end of the world is just as real as the temple being demolished. That's humbling. This is a historical event. Jesus' second coming will be just as real as the fact that there is no more temple in Jerusalem. And all the signs, therefore, that pointed to the coming destruction of the temple, all those signs are also gonna, you're going to see in our world today as we wait for Jesus to come back. And so think of it like, this is what I found helpful. Think of it like a movie preview. Right? We live in a movie world. Everybody's seeing films. Trailers have become a whole market in and of itself. If you want to know what the full event of a movie is like, they give you a two-minute snapshot. Right? So confession time, I watched the Avengers Infinity War trailer a bunch before the movie came out because I wanted to know what, what is going to happen. Right? The fictional end of the world. And so... The destruction of the temple is like a movie preview of what the end of the world will be like. It's a preview of, what to come, of what's to come, a preview of what's to expect. And so that's why we can go through Matthew 24 and say, okay, this is helpful for me. Jesus is preparing me for what's to come. So when bad stuff happens in my world, in my country, right here in 2018, I don't need to be surprised. It's going to hurt but it hurts more when you're surprised. And Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised, so he, he tells us. So let's look at it. What should we expect? And the first thing he does, it says, expect birth pains. That's verse 8, which is a really helpful analogy. Wars, famines, earthquakes, false teachers, people claiming to know spiritual reality better than Jesus, all these are just like contractions, birth pains, anticipating something to, to come, right? So I'm, I'm a parent of four kids. I've learned a few things. Uh, one is to not to talk about childbirth like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but when Jesus talks about birth pains, he's talking about contractions, right? These things that hurt, that's, that's getting you ready for what's the joy that's going to come, a child coming into the world. And I know about these things for my wife, these things called Braxton Hicks contractions. They're practice. They're getting you ready for what's to come. They're previews. Right? And so it's evidence that there is a child inside of you. There's evidence that a child will come out. And it's evidence that pain will happen. But just because you have a contraction right now, it doesn't mean you need to panic. It doesn't mean you need to run, get an ambulance, and jump in the hospital. Right? I know there are those few women who sneeze and have a baby. Right? They, we hear about them in the news. They didn't even know they were pregnant. But the normal way is you, you have contractions. And no, not even the doctors know, okay, you're here. You have a contraction. I know when the end's going to be. They just know the end is coming. 
And so this is the analogy. You're going to hear false teachers. You should expect wars. You should expect natural disasters. These are all just the beginnings of the end, which is really helpful because it means you don't have to get weird. You don't have to panic. When, when there are hurricanes, when there are, there's a war in the Middle East, when there's famine in the Sudan and Yemen like there is now, uh, when there are people saying, no, Jesus is wrong, I know better than Jesus, uh, Jesus said, well, yeah, that was going to happen. It's just, it's just a contraction getting closer to the end. Right? It's not proof that Jesus will be here next week, nor is it proof that he might not be here next week. But the end is coming. And it's really helpful just to know that all the junk that's happening in the world, all the pain, all the hurt, all the tribulation, all the moral atrocities, the political corruption, the confusion, natural evil, moral evil, it's just proof that there is a child in labor and that the end will come. That's how Jesus conceives of the end of the world. That's how he thinks about it. So just take the first one, verse 11. And verse, verse 4, right? These false messiahs, these people claiming to be better than Jesus, it happened even before the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus died and rose again, and there were loads of people that came after Jesus who said, I'm better. The problem is they all died, never to be heard from again. So one guy named Thutis called himself a prophet, said, I'm going to divide the Jordan River, and all these people followed him, and then he died. The Romans executed him. And I'm guessing none of you had heard of that guy until right now (laughs) because he's had no impact on history. And it's the same for us today. Jesus says, expect people to show up and claim to know more than the Bible, to have better revelation, to have just to have all kinds of weird ideas about spiritual reality that aren't from Jesus, who is spiritual reality. Right? You can think of some in the last century. David Koresh. Jim Jones, it's in our language. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, which is a heartbreaking way to think about it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't get led astray. Just expect it. If it's not in the Bible, don't listen to him. And if, it, you know, if you can't confirm it with what Jesus is saying, don't listen to him. If Jesus says, I don't know when the end is coming, why would you listen to somebody who says, I know when the end is coming? Right? And the test to know whether... They are true Messiah or false Messiah is whether or not what they say comes true. And Jesus said, I will rise from the dead. And then he did rise from the dead. And the ultimate proof, if you want to to look at it this way, is the resurrection of Christ. That happened in history, just as real as the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's a a Christian music artist named Shai Lin. I've talked about him before. And he has this great song called Jesus is Alive. And he just lists all these famous teachers. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Gandhi is dead. Muhammad is dead. Jesus is alive. And he says, look, throughout history, there's been mad religious leaders, prophets, preachers, scholars, teachers, but when it came to the grave, no one could climb out. That's where Jesus stands alone, like taking a time out. There's no resurrection. Christianity would never have spread. The disciples weren't stupid guys who would ruin their lives and then choose to die for what they knew was a lie. It'd be ridiculous. 
The risen Christ seen by 500 eyewitnesses. Just imagine 500 people in a court of law, each of them taking in the stand, reporting what they saw. If their stories lined up and made sense, the evidence would have to leave you convinced, but it's still by faith that we trust the Son who was raised for our justification. And that, his whole point is, look, here's the test. This is what Jesus is, is you're going to see through the Gospel of Matthew, the ultimate test for a true Messiah. Is their prophecy comes true? For Jesus, that he's alive. Historically, it's real. So don't be led astray by somebody somebody who's not standing on the resurrection of Christ. Right? Now, you also have these things, wars and famines. They're also birth pains. They're contractions. Right? You don't need to start prepping when, when bad things happen. And this is really encouraging because Christians in every generation have looked at the wars, have looked at the brutality, and they said, it's so bad, Jesus must be coming back soon. That was just as true in the Apostles' Day. It's just as true now. Right? Jesus says this is what to expect. Wars, conflicts, hurricanes, tsunamis, they're just in agony waiting for this child to be born, so to speak. They're contractions telling you something better is coming. I mean, just think of the 20th century, Afghanistan, Iraq, Korea, Vietnam, World War II, the Great Useless War, World War I, just millions of people dying. So much worse than we have right now. And Jesus says they're contractions. So don't panic. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't be chicken little every time you read the newspaper. He knew, what, he knew this, this is part of the process. And it's really helpful. It means, one, we shouldn't freak out, and two, it really humbles us. Don't be so optimistic <laughs> to, to think that history is going like this on an upward trajectory. Because in every generation, leading up to the destruction of the temple, but then in every generation after, there are wars and rumors of wars. Right? Optimists don't live in Syria or Congo. Jesus is saying, don't be an optimist, be a realist. This is just the world we live in, waiting for him to come back. Right? And I know I've had these conversations before where we say, it's so bad Jesus has to be coming, and I've felt that way too. But just listen to how bad the fall of Jerusalem was. It's going to be a little graphic, but I'm going to try and tame it down. But Jesus said this was going to be happening. It's so bad, you don't want to be pregnant, you don't want to be nursing, you don't want to be anywhere near Jerusalem when it happens. And Josephus was a historian who was there, who walked into the immediate aftermath. It was just unparalleled, horrific suffering. Hunger was so bad that, that parents ate their children because the Romans rolled up, set up a blockade, and kept food and water from going in into the city. And people just turned on themselves, even their loved ones. In 70 AD, when the Roman soldiers finally broke through, the people inside the city had already started killing one another, and, and the, the soldiers didn't make any distinction bet- between the warriors and the weak. Bodies were piled up. They, people were running away, and the soldiers would still cut them down. And the, Josephus says there was a river of blood flowing from the bodies piled up on the sanctuary in the temple. Prisoners taken, 97,000. Those killed 
1,100,000. And the temple was torn down, never to be rebuilt. It's historical. And in fact, you can go to Rome and see the Arch of Titus in commemoration of the violence. This stuff happened. And to everyone there, it felt like the end of the world. And Jesus says that's a contraction. Actually, that's the abomination of desolation. All this violence in God's house. That's verse 15. So you can see why Jesus would say to his Christian brothers and sisters, if, if you this is coming, run away. Don't go back into your house for who cares about your iPhone. Get to the, or don't come down off the roof where you're eating. Just run to the mountains. Hope it's not Sabbath, because if it's Sabbath, the Jews won't help you. They won't give you food. They're not going to do any work. Hope it's not winter, because you want good weather when you escape. Right? And give God praise that the violence will have an end. But don't be deceived. These are contractions. And this is point number three here as to what to expect. You think about wars, famines, earthquakes, uh, false teachers. These are all signs of the end. It's also just, just that Christians will suffer. This is, this is a depressing sermon <laughs> in some ways, but it's not depressing because it's real. This is where we live. Because in verse 9, Jesus says, They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And he just describes the time between times that life now is, the whole thing is tribulation. All right. And this is helpful because it takes away the surprise. Because we live in a culture that, that is, we, we don't expect to suffer because of how comfortable we are. And so when it happens, it hurts. And the double hurt is, uh, it's like getting, getting hit in the gut and the knees. It's more disorienting when you don't expect Jesus to describe all of life as tribulation. He says Christians are going to suffer in every nation. They're going to be hated. Just the fact that they worship Jesus, there's no safe place. Um, Christians are going to see how bad it is in the world, and people who you thought loved Jesus are going to walk away. They're going to say it's too hard, too depressing. Uh, People are going to look at the world and say, look at how immoral people are. Look at the mess out there. And their love for Jesus is going to go cold. It's going to be like a fire that slowly burns out. Christians are going to hurt and betray other Christians. And in general, it's going to seem like people are worse today than they were a generation ago. And Jesus describes all of that as tribulation. And he's not surprised by it. He says, don't be surprised. This is part of the birth pains. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved. And that's really the command here is is hold on. When things get bad, the command is to persevere. And to persevere through tribulation because that's the world in which we live. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. The Bible is the, the most realistic worldview that you will find. Because it honors your suffering. It says it's real, this is what's going to happen, and Jesus is going to fix it. So how do you do that? How do you persevere through the junk that that happens, through the birth pains? How do you hold on? It'd be great if we could just take an epidural and not feel any of the pains and never suffer. But that's what we do. That's idolatry. 
We self-medicate, right? We, we turn to drugs. We, we Netflix and chill and try and avoid it. All these things. How do Christians persevere? Because Jesus did. Right? Did you know that Jesus' whole life could be described as tribulation? It's bookended by grief and injustice. He was born... He was born into a world where he had to flee as a refugee to avoid the slaughter of the innocents. King Herod tried to kill all the the little boys to and under. As an adult, he was unfairly accused. He was tried and convicted of crimes he did not commit. He was arrested at night with no witnesses. I mean, this, this legal process was a complete sham, all set up to shame and humiliate some the perfect Lamb of God. And ultimately, he was crucified between two thieves, the innocent one. I mean, just think of how much rage you feel about, the, about being wrongly accused. And yet Jesus didn't fight it. He submitted to the Lord's will. He didn't get angry at God. He didn't abandon the faith. He didn't turn his, in anger on those who fell away alongside of him, right? His loved ones, the disciples, they all panicked and ran. They freaked out. They fled. They struck the shepherd Jesus and the sheep scattered. And he, even then, Jesus didn't turn on him. And at the end of his life, in the, the, the final act of faith, so to speak, as he's crucified, he's, he's been forsaken by God, undergoing God's judgment. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Through every moment of every act of tribulation that he underwent, he lived by faith. He persevered. He endured to the end. For you, for me. So Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done. And the beauty of the gospel is this, that he went through tribulation to guarantee your place in the new heavens and new earth. All right, so if you are wavering, if you are doubting, if you are struggling to hold on through the, through the trials that God is throwing at you right now, look at Jesus' tribulations lived out for you. Counselor Elise Fitzpatrick says, from Jesus' first breath in Jerusalem, in, in Bethlehem, until his final cry of, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus was offering to you and me all the proof we need to cast off our doubt and belief. So hold on. The end will come. The contractions will end. The new heavens and earth will come. Jesus will return for you. Hold on. Right? And so just think about that. If we know what's to come, right, would, now would you get on the Titanic if you know what to expect? If that at the end of the journey of going through that trial and tribulation, you would end up in paradise? Or to use the birth analogy, right, mothers go through this over and over again. Are you going to go through the pain? Are you willing to go through the pain to get through the joy? Jesus says the joy is coming. Hold on. Because the joy of the new life just outshines the pain that we're going through. Right? And that's our hope. Jesus suffered to kill all suffering. Living by faith means you and I need to believe that when Jesus comes back, all sickness, sorrow, and suffering will be eliminated. And if he held on to you on the cross at the very worst, 
We think the destruction of Jerusalem was hell. Jesus went through worse. And he held on to you through that. So surely he'll hold on to you through what you're going through now. One more sign. The gospel will go into all the world. You won't be the only one who believes this stuff. That's encouraging. (laughs) Even before the temple, it was said that everybody, the whole world has, has been proclaimed has heard the gospel. The known world in Jesus' day, and for, within a generation, there were Africans, there were Asians, there were Europeans worshiping Jesus together. They were eating at the Lord's table together. Former enemies were showing proof, showing evidence of faith by worshiping together. And Jesus says, when every tribe, tongue, and nation believes, then the end will come. See, we know the world to be bigger. So when every tribe, tongue, and nation is reached, he will come. And this is the beauty of the, of the gospel. This is the beauty of Christianity, that, that part of the reason the end is taking so long is because Jesus is not willing to leave behind any family member from every, any tribe. We, we are part of a global movement. All right. Jesus is saying there are people... On the other side of the world, across the, the, the street, that are waiting for good news, who are going through tribulation, and their worldview doesn't make any sense of it. They need to hear that there is hope. They need to hear the good news that Jesus loves them, and that he was crucified for them, and that what they are going through is a birth pain to make sense of their suffering. And one of the things you will see as we wait for Jesus is the nations will come to believe. Jesus is an American. Actually, the center of of the Christian faith has always been on the move. It's been in Jerusalem. That was destroyed. It scattered the disciples. They moved out to Rome, uh, to to Constantinople. It's been in Europe. It's been in Africa. By 2030, the center will probably be China, no longer America. There's going to be more Christians in China in in several years uh, than there are in America is what they're predicting. The gospel will go out, and then people, then Jesus will return when the last loved one is brought into the fold. And the end will be so obvious, Jesus says, that you won't miss it. It's going to be like lightning in the sky. It's going to be, imagine being in a flat place, and you see vultures circling the dead. You can't miss the vultures when you can see 10 miles ahead. Right? It's telling you something obvious has happened. Right? So... What do you do with all that? <laughs> right? I know this is a big chunk of information. Right? But what do you long for as you hear all this? Right? And I think this is what's really helpful to end with. We're called to long for the eternal summer. Right? We know the future now. Now we're called to wait and to hold on. And, and Jesus says in verse 32... Learn from the fig tree its lesson, that as soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And it's, see, in in Israel, one of the only trees that would lose its leaves in winter was the fig tree. I mean, this is normal for us as New Yorkers, right? The leaves fall, fall off and die or lose their chlorophyll, as Jonah's telling me. And when they, the buds come back, we know summer's coming. And so 
Just think about how we react as New Yorkers. As soon as, you, as soon as the temperature gets above 35 and the sun comes out, we put on our shorts and just go stand there. So thank God it's getting better. <laughs> and Jesus uses that image to say, this is how you use those signs. They are signs, spring is here, but the eternal summer is coming. Right now, all of life is winter. Right? And Aslan has come, so to speak. Jesus has come and he's moved it towards spring, but we're waiting for the eternal summer. And the promise is the end of injustice, the end of war, the end of tribulation, the end of betrayal, the end of death and disease. These things will not bloom in Jesus' eternal summer, the new heavens and new earth. Right? So do you long for that? How do you get, how do you get in on that? I hinted at it when I talked about perseverance. But I got one more. We're going to come back around here because there's one thing I skipped. It's all the weird stuff about the sun and light and the moon and everybody weeping and wailing and mourning in verses 29. And I'm going to do this in three minutes. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. I want that day to come. And that's especially the more you suffer, the older you get, the more tribulation you have under your belt. We say, I want this to come. And Jesus says... Here, when he returns, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What is that about? It's kind of gloomy. Because we're talking about good things. Why do we mourn if good things are going to come? And it, what he's doing is pulling from Zechariah chapter 12, which predicted the, the misery of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And the weeping in Zechariah 12 for, for the tribes is over God's judgment in Jerusalem, and Jesus says that's going to be full scale for the entire earth. But in the midst of the promise of judgment, and this is our hope, was this. God speaking, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, God says, when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. They shall mourn for him like one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. See what, do you see what Jesus just did? He's saying there's two kinds of weeping and wailing that we're, going, we're called to do. You can weep now over the judgment our sin caused that led Jesus to be pierced on our behalf. Or we will weep later when all that judgment falls on us. It's your choice. If you weep now in repentance, right, the last day will be good news. You're going to long for the eternal summer. You'll have this confidence that Jesus will own me. Or right, the option is to mourn and weep and wail and say, I didn't believe Jesus knew what he was talking about. And when I see it publicly, then I'm going to realize... I was wrong, and I'm on my own. And that's, that's the humbling part of Matthew 24. He's saying, choose your tears. Weep over Christ's suffering, or will you weep over yours? So go and learn what it means. The eternal summer is coming. Christ is alive. And even your tribulations are just birth pangs. If you would weep over your sin and run to the cross. Let's pray. Father, there was a lot of information, and yet it's quite simple. 
You love us more than we can imagine, despite us being worse than we would ever dare admit. And so I pray you would help us see that our trials are contractions waiting for this everlasting joy to be, to be born, for Jesus to return, and give us strength to persevere. And if there are those who don't yet know you, I pray this would be a warning that is heard and seen that uh, leads them to repentance, that comes to believe and hear the good news of grace that we are given. So help us to rest in the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.